Hi, and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. You know, I love hearing stories of how God works in human life. There's some incredible, maybe even miraculous ways he takes the brokenness, the hurt, the pain, even our rebellious ways to create something brand new. Well, today I want to take you to an interview I did with Earl Davis, a retired Detroit police officer after 30 years of service. I first met Earl in 2013 at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville, Tennessee. After talking with him, I thought his story needs to be shared. So the next year, in 2014, at the very same convention in Nashville, I caught up with Earl, who was driving the same bus for the Word Network. A matter of fact, the bus was sitting on the convention exhibition hall where we sat inside to conduct this interview. Let's step back into 2014 and hear the story of Earl Davis. Well, I came to Detroit when I was about six, seven years old. I grew up in the city of Detroit, went to Detroit public schools here, graduated from high school, went into the Air Force, did six years in the Air Force. When I got out, I came back. I went to work for Ford Motor Company. Then I worked for the bus company in Detroit. And then I finally ended up going with the police department in Detroit. That's where I stayed for 30 long years. What about your parents? Talk about family life growing up, what it was like at home. My family, my mother uh, was from Kentucky. Growing up in Detroit, to me back then, those were good days. The kids could play outside, and we wouldn't worry about nobody getting shot and guns and things like that. Church-minded family. We was in church. My uh, father was a gospel singer at the time. He went to do gospel programs. The family went with him, you know. As I grew up, like I said, went in the service. I came back. I got into the gospel field with my dad, really my stepfather. Gospel's been a bigger part of my life since then. You told me, if I remember right, that you had a very special relationship with your stepdad. Yeah. My real father died when I was young, very young. And my mom remarried, and we moved to Detroit. And my dad worked at Ford Motor Company out in Rouge. My stepfather worked for Ford Motor Company. And he took us a lot of places, spent a lot of time with us, and we've spent a lot of time out of town, especially when the groups had their conventions, the gospel groups had their conventions. That's where I got my desire, really, to sing from was from him. And I kind of did it backwards because I was doing a lot of R&B when I was overseas. And I had always, when I was singing, I always patted my voice after Eddie Kendricks and the Temptations, <laughs> which was my number one group, still is today, you know. So that's where I got my desire to sing. I might have to get you to sing a little bit before we say goodbye to our friends because I'm telling you what, you can hit those notes. I you got the try. sound. You got the sound. Uh, let's talk about your journey with Christ. When did you first hear the gospel? When I was... 13, 14, my mother had us in church. The church I was associated with was Greater Future Missionary Baptist Church, and that, that was, was my church up until the time that I uh, left and went into the service. But after coming back, I ended up out of church for a while, and then I was a member of several other churches. And I finally went back to my church. Actually, I went back and rejoined my church at one of the mothers, the old mothers, had passed away. I was working in the police department. Somebody told me this mother, they was doing escort at this church. And then when they told me, I said, that's my old church. I went back and I rejoined my old church at her funeral. I actually went up and sat down beside the casket and rejoined my old church at Mother People's funeral. I rejoined my church. Mother People's. Mm-hmm. She was a mother in the church that really just took time and really took time raising the kids in the church. Make sure you did the right things. You know, when the parents were in there, she kind of control of everything yeah. you know and she was a good woman very good woman well i want to get into your story where we were talking about your children we we're talking about you've had several children 
Yeah, I, when I was married, I had three children. You know, everybody knew, but I had outside kids I never recognized. You know, being young, you out there fooling around, but what really brought me to my senses, and I'm going to tell you, God only knocks you down so many times before it's permanent, the way I see it. And I've been out there running the clubs, playing the games, and dealing with the women and all, but August 23rd, 11.23 at night, I was working the police department. I was on my way home, and I was off duty. And I stopped at regular gas station. I stopped at to pick up some milk and get gas. That was the night that this young man decided he's going to carjack me. And I didn't really know it was going to happen. I'm in the gas station by myself. Now, were you in uniform? I was off duty in plain clothes, okay. going home. And I was pumping gas, and I saw this young man coming down the street. Really didn't pay him any mind. And he went in towards the gas station, which I lost sight of him. Okay, fine. I just got a real funny feeling in the pit of my stomach, and someone said, put your hand on your gun. So I reached up under my T-shirt, and I grabbed the butt of my gun, took the pump with my left. What he did was he walked around the front of my van on the opposite side. All my blinds were pulled. He saw wasn't nobody in the van in the station but me. He walked right up on with the gun turned sideways, and he walked right up in my face, poured in my face, and said, give up the transportation. And I looked at him. When I said police, he put the barrel to my chest and pulled the trigger. At that moment, it blew me backwards, and I pulled my gun, but I fired on my way down, and I hit my back on the ground. My keys were in my pocket. I don't know where he ran to, but he disappeared. Well, I got up off the ground, and I made it back in the gas station, and I grabbed the counter, and there were two Chaldeans behind bulletproof glass this thick. I said, down 911, I'm off duty, and I've been shot in the chest. They looked at me like they were holding each other like two cartoon characters shaking, you know. So I grabbed my phone off my belt, tucked my gun in my arm, and I dialed 911. State police answered and asked what the problem was, and I told them. And he told me, he said, help's on the way. Well, I dropped my phone, grabbed my gun, I fell back in the floor. And the whole time I was laying there, I was like, <clears throat> like gasping. I didn't know the bullet had collapsed my lung. And as I looked out the door, it shows you how people don't get involved. As I looked out the door, this guy pulls up in a white Chrysler Dynasty, gets out, walks up to the door, looks in, and I read his lips through the door. He said, oh, no. All he could see really was my blood-soaked T-shirt and a gun in my hand. My badge was clipped under my T-shirt on my belt. He left. He drove away. I laid there and said, well, Lord, you know what? I've always asked not to die a violent death on the street on this job. I've always asked God to let me to go in my sleep or let me fall singing gospel, which I love doing. So I laid there. A lady pulled up. She saw me. She turned around. She just took off. So as I'm laying there, these two never came out from behind that bulletproof glass. Did they ever make a telephone call? They didn't even make a phone call. When I laid there, an old song rang through my mind that a group called the Mighty Clouds of Joy did years ago called Pray For Me. And it's like a total calm just came over my body. And I accepted the fact that I was dying. About that time, this bell rang on this door, and I knew somebody's coming in. I said, well, if this is the guy, I'm going to empty my clip. I'm just start firing. Somebody said, oh, my God, it's Earl. It was two officers in an unmarked car that made it to the scene. One of them put my legs together. 
And they got on the radio and they called and to get a location on EMS, you know. And when they got there, they said, that's too far. They picked me up, slid me in the back seat of my car, and they shot me to the hospital. Well, when I got there, I was about faded out. They got me into emergency, and the doctor cut my shirt off, and they set me up. He checked me. He said, okay, the bullet has gone through and out your back. But your lung has collapsed, and we've got to put a tube in you to drain this blood. Otherwise, you're going to die. I said, well, doc, I can't stand a lot of pain. Just knock me out. I can't take this. He said, I can't do that because i got to make sure your vital signs. So what he did was he took a little cluster of needles and he hit me in my right side. and He put a, like a, a scar from oh, about the size of my baby finger. When he went in me with that tube, I freaked out. I went nuts. My legs screaming, holler. I was doing everything. And his glove had split and he had to come out, take the tube out. And he's getting ready to go again. And this, this female doctor said, young man, I'm going to do this. I could feel her fingers with the tube going in my side, up through my rib cage and in. And I, I lost it. I lost it. Finally, they got me sedated pretty good. Got me settled. And they said they had to keep me for about maybe six or seven days. I tell everybody, be careful how you treat people because you never know who comes to your aid. There was no Good Samaritan that night. Nobody. Nobody. The officers made it there and got me to the hospital. But as I laid there, I looked in that emergency room. There was three state police officers, two Highland Park police officers, and four of the guys that I worked traffic enforcement one of the guys was holding his son in his arms. And I looked. I said, where did y'all come from? My brother stepped up and said, you know what, Earl? Everybody heard you got shot. The lobby is full. I said, what? So the doc said, well, get him upstairs. He's going to stay for six, seven days. Next day, I woke up to somebody rubbing my hand saying, Errol, Errol. And when I opened my eyes, this white female police officer named Charlene Welch, I had broke her in on the job. She said, Earl, wake up. We, we, we can't afford to pay $3 out of all our checks for you to die. You got to come back. <laughs> so I looked at it and I laughed, you know. But I'm going to tell you something. The most astounding thing that happened during the six days that I was in that hospital was on that fourth night, 2.30 in the morning. I hurt so bad that I just doubled up and grabbed my chest, and I started shaking. And my night nurse came in making a round. She said, young man, are you all right? I said, no, ma'am. I'm hurting so bad. She said, why don't you push the button and get some pain medication? I said, well, I'm trying to learn to endure this pain for the first time in my life. She said, you know what? You're not very smart for a police officer. I said, yes, ma'am. So she said, I'll be right back. I'm going to get you two Tylenol threes. She walked out my door, my room. My door, just, you know, hospital room doors, they close real slow. She never touched that light switch on that wall. When the door closed, all my lights went out and the room was completely black. I curled over, I'm crying, I'm shaking, I'm asking God, please take this off of me. And it's just like, just a matter of a few seconds, only thing I heard was a real soft voice saying, I'm not through with you yet. And I cried like a baby. I behooved. I knew what it was. Wasn't nobody but God. That's all it was. Wow. When she came back with those two pills, she said, Mr. Davis, I got two Tylenol 3s. I want you to take one. 
I looked at it, I said, you know what? My chest doesn't hurt anymore. The pain just subsided. It, it just went away. She said, well, you take these if you need them. I'm going to leave them. I laid there when she walked out, and I thought about all the wrong things I've been doing, the way I've been living my life. And one song hit my mind, and I said, I, I want to re-record it. It was called, I Decided to Make Jesus My Choice. And I got to humming it, and I got to sing it so loud, she came back in the room. I said, what's wrong? She said, are you all right? I said, yeah, I'm fine. She said, well, finish that song. I said, oh, no, ooh, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. She said, young man, before you leave this hospital, you're going to finish that song. So the next day, my brother and my sister were supposed to pick me up at 11. They didn't show them till 1. When they got there, they put me in the wheelchair, and they was wheeling me towards the door of the room. This big woman stepped in the doorway. Where are you going? I said, you got off at 8 o'clock, didn't you? She said, no, I was supposed to, but I heard what time you were getting out. She said, finish my song. And my brother, Ben, he said, you know what? She's too big for me to run this chair through, so I'm going to wait over here till you finish singing. <laughs> but people used to ask me sometimes, Earl, why do you cry when you sing? I said, you know what? My mind goes back to everything that God has brought me through. He didn't bring me this far to leave me now. Yeah. When I got out of the hospital, I put all my kids together. I called each of the mothers that had kids by. Can you tell us how many children we're talking about? Seven. Did your wife know that you had these children? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, the, the wife I was married to then, we were divorced, and I was with somebody else. But when I did get out, I called the mothers of the kids that had, you know, kids by. Two of them literally cursed me out. You never done nothing for them. You ain't done nothing. I said, okay, I don't want to hit. I just want to come get them. I put my kids together one Saturday. I had a van. Put them all in the van. The youngest was in the back. My oldest daughter sitting up next to me, she looked back. She said, Daddy, who are these little kids? I said, well, I'll tell you when I get to where I'm going. I had no idea how I was going to explain to them who they were to each other. I went to Bob Evans on 696 there in Detroit. And I walked in. The manager said, how many? I said, well, a total is eight. He set us down at this long table. And I sit there with my head down in my hands, you know. And my daughter nudged me and said, Daddy, who are these little kids? I said, well, for you older kids, these are your younger brothers and sisters. And for you youngsters, these are your older brothers and sisters. I turned away and put my head in my hand. I felt so ashamed and embarrassed. I couldn't even look at them. It got real quiet. All of a sudden, I heard this laughter. They talking and giggling. And I turned around. They laughing and talking. And my youngest daughter, under my oldest daughter, said, Daddy, why didn't you tell us we had younger siblings? They couldn't come over and spend the night. I said, well, you know what? I was ashamed and embarrassed where I've been living my life, you know, running the streets, playing around, wasn't home with you guys when I should have been. And she said, yeah, there was a lot of times we needed you. You wasn't there. She said, but one thing about it, you're our father and we love you. I made my kids a promise from that day. I can't go back and correct the past. But from that day forward, if you want whatever you want to do, go to school, finish I'll work yes. my best to put you through school. Yeah. I have nine kids now because girl and man too have two sons, so I got nine kids and ten grandbabies. The three of my kids went through college, completed it. None of my kids have ever been to jail, never been locked up for anything, and I told them all, you know what I do in the street, you know what my profession is. Don't let nobody call me and tell me they got you locked up in jail. Because I will be the judge and the jury. I am blessed that all my kids are in good health yeah. and doing fine. They're in church. They're going to church, raising my grandbabies. My kids are beautiful. 
Errol, that's one of the reasons why I wanted this story to be shared here with our Bot Radio Network listeners, is to talk about the responsibility of dads for their children. Even though mistakes were made, yes, I remember seeing on a Memphis news story, this has been quite a few months ago, there was a young man, and I think some charges were being pressed for a lack of child support, and I think there was like 22 children involved. Yeah. But his attitude was he didn't want the responsibility. We're living in a world where fathers are not being responsible for their children. Well, you know, I would tell any young man today, women don't have kids by themselves, okay? You don't look at a woman like a piece of meat. That is God's child, okay? When you meet a woman, you get with a woman, be man enough to take responsibility if she gets pregnant and has a baby. Step up to the plate. Take care of your responsibility. That's the problem today. A lot of kids have been growing up in single-parent homes. We got kids that's going astray, getting into drugs, committing crimes because the man is not in home. If, if you're not married to her, be the father in that child's life that you're supposed to be. He needs somebody to look up to. Every day as being a police officer, I see it all the time. You know, guys just treat women any kind of way. I get very bad attitude when I hear of spouse abuse. I've never in my 65 years have never laid my hands on a woman in anger. My father told me, if you get that angry, turn and walk away. It's not worth going to jail. And I stuck by that years. I have never put my hands on a woman in anger. Tell me about the hopes and the dreams you have for your children. I have a daughter now who's gone to school, engineering. She wants to get into the the technical end of it. I just want my kids to be prosperous. But first of all, I want them to put God first in their lives. Okay. You can't do anything without God. And so far, all of my kids are working. All my kids have been productive. Like I said, they're not in no trouble. And they're raising my grandkids right. They're raising my grandkids up. They call me Poppy, Granddaddy, you know, whichever one I want to answer to, you know. And it's just so funny. I said, I'm being called Granddaddy? Oh, my God. <laughs> I had to good, get used to it. That's a great feeling, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. They'll come. I have three, my stepsons. Their kids come spend the weekend. Oh, they drive me crazy. But I have so much fun with them. I have so much fun. And it's a granddaddy, can we stay awake? Oh, no, no, I'm already crazy. You <laughs> drive me nuts. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, Byron, in coming here to Nashville, which I truly enjoy, it's a beautiful place, I have never been, and I've been to a lot of cities on the road. I have never been to a place where I found a people so hospitable, so polite. I mean, it's just unbelievable. In the North, it look cold. We got a few nights, but they look cold. Here, it's totally different. So you're thinking we need to find a way we can bottle this hospitality and take it up to Michigan? Michigan, <laughs> Chicago, and everywhere else you can take it to because it's, Byron is just unreal. When I can come here with my bus and leave it in the shop of service, and the owner of the shop gives me his own personal car to drive while I'm here, that just blows me away. That don't happen in Michigan. It don't. Meeting you was a joy because, Byron, your personality is great. You are definitely a man of God, and I saw that when we first met. Well, brother, you're so kind. I just sense a oneness of spirit, and when you, you shared your story, I felt like it really needed to be shared. And this is really a story of God's grace, His mercy, and working in an individual's life. And I can't help but think there's those listening to us today that have been in some deep, dark places in the past. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe they have some things that they're quite ashamed of, but 
in Jesus, if we're willing to be accountable in front of him, yes, answer to him, yes, broken and humble before him, that's really the starting point, isn't it? And God is a forgiving God. Yes. He's a, don't worry about nobody else. Yeah. God is the only one you worry about. Music is a really special part in your life. Yes, it is. You mentioned the Mighty Clouds of Joy. I remember they had a television show when I was a young boy. Oh, I used yeah. to watch some of that. Joe Lagan. And yeah. he's still out there to this day singing hard. Oh, my. But the guys I sing with now, the Dynamic Souls appears in Detroit. We do travel from time to time with the Clouds and the Williams Brothers. We do concerts from time to time with them. It's so funny that when we go places, a lot of people think, well, from the tone of my voice, I sing bass or baritone, but I really don't. You're going to surprise our listeners today, I think. Can you sing a little bit for us? Do you feel uh, like it? I'll give you a little bit of a song that went across my mind in the hospital. It like, goes like this. Some folks would rather have houses and land. Some folks choose silver and gold. But these things they treasure and forget about their soul. I decided to make Jesus my choice. Just a little bit. I have decided to make Jesus my choice. And, you know, we're so busy making choices in life, and we often forget about that most important choice. Yes, God is the most important choice. Everyone should make Jesus their choice. You can't do anything without the Lord, nothing. If you think you can handle a situation when it messes up, who do you blame? Yourself. But when God takes hold of a situation, it always works out. Works out the way he wants it to work out. There's an old saying. He always comes right on time, not on your time. He may not come when you want him to, but he's always right on time. Always on time. Again, I can't help but think that there are those that struggling with the shame and, and the guilt, too, have allowed it to structure the way they live. Yes. You know? Yeah. And there is freedom available in Jesus Christ. Oh, yes. You know, oh, I yes. have come that you might know the truth, and the truth would set you free. It will. It most assuredly will. And that's the thing that we so often try to avoid because we want to try to work it out ourselves. We can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> we cannot do it. Now, when it gets to be home time, when you're just kicking back with the family and the grandchildren, what do you guys like to do as a family? We have a place called Chuck E. Cheese's. Sometimes well, me and my wife would take them to the movies, doing kitty things to keep the kids occupied. Birthday parties, we get all the kids together, all the kids and the, and the cousins together, and we celebrate their birthdays, take them out, let them have a good time. Then the weekends, we have two or three of them come spend the weekend, you know, but sometimes I'm on the road with my gospel group, which keeps me busy. Like I said, singing is my first love, and I'll never give that up. I may give up everything else, but I'm not going to give up singing for the Lord. I'll never do that. Now, you've also written some original songs, too, I believe you told me. We rewrote the song Amazing Grace. It's not done like any other Amazing Grace that you know of. It's strictly high-pitched, one called Jesus. We wrote the song, put music to the Bible verse, The Lord is My Shepherd. We made that into a music version. And it sold pretty good. People loved it around the country. It sold pretty good. So we're back in the studio now. We're about to complete our seventh CD. Should be completed. I got to go back home. Should be completed in another couple of weeks. And we're going to try and get it out, you know, to the public. Is your music available for our listeners to purchase? If you go on YouTube and look up the dynamic Soul Superiors, you will see an older version of the group when Fred Burns and three or four of his sons were there. And there's a guy named Bob. Bob was a unique 
tenor singer. This was the first time anybody seen a young white fella singing in an all-black gospel group that sang tenor that blew people away. Everywhere we went blew them away. When we go places, where's Bob? Where's Bob? <laughs> Bob just blew folks. He had a beautiful tenor. He sang Amazing Grace for years until I took it over in recent years. And Bob had a bout with cancer. He come out of the group. He's now singing with his uh, male chorus choir in, in Detroit. But he's, he's doing fine. Can you give us a little something else as we say goodbye? I'll give you one by Paul Beasley, which I love to do. And it's like, one of these mornings won't be long. you look for me and I'll be gone, Lord. I'm going to a place I have nothing to do. Just walk around heaven all day. Harold Davis, God bless you, my dear brother. Thank you for what you're doing for Christ's Thank you, Byron, so much for having me on. It's, it's truly been a pleasure, and it, it was really a shock to me this time that you came back and got me on radio. I was not expecting hey, this. I told you I was coming back. I didn't expect this, Byron. Well, I truly appreciate your time because I know we were busy yesterday. I truly appreciate you coming back, Byron. I do. I tell the public this. Give God your all. He is your all in all. If you want to be blessed... Give your life to the Lord. He will bless you so, so much you can't control it all. Just get on your knees and give him the praise. That's all you have to do. All and right. thank you, Byron. God bless you. On that, we're going to say goodbye. Thank you for listening to this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Today's Mid-South Viewpoint is brought to you by Navage. Just think about all the nasty stuff we breathe in every day. You know, the dust, allergens, bacteria, pollen, pollution. If you wash your hands and brush your teeth every day, then why aren't you cleaning your nose to clean out all that junk that's trapped up in there? Let me tell you about this product. If you suffer from allergies, sinus infections, or are worried about what you're breathing in, it's called Navage. N-A-V-A-G-E. What's Navage? Well, it's the world's only nose cleaner with powered suction. People that have suffered from lifelong allergies call Navage a complete game changer. They are breathing more clearly, sleeping better, snoring less, and feeling a whole lot better. In fact, 90% of people who use Navage report feeling healthier. Experience what it's like to truly breathe better. Go ahead and visit Navage.com. That's Navage.com. Or you can find Navage at Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, Bed Bath & Beyond, and Target. Navage. N-A-V-A-G-E.